Our Father, we're thankful again for the gift of your grace, for how you have sovereignly worked in history to bring about our salvation. And you are continuing to work in history with our sanctification. And you will work in history to bring out the apocalypse and the end times and the final resolution to history. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the um, amazing life of this King of old that so mirrors the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, King David. We ask this um, anointing and this uh, understanding tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Just to kind of get going into this material, I wanted to review some basic things. Again, we keep going back to basics because we can't get enough of... Of, of review and basics because we constantly hit on these things um, and we, we have to understand them. So tonight I'd like to start by just reviewing the purpose of man in creation and that if you look in Genesis, we did this two years ago and we said that the whole purpose of man was created to subdue the earth. He was in order. In, he was to rule, and that that is what man is to do under God, of course, not as an autonomous king, but as a king who is an underlord to the overlord. And man is not to worship nature. He is to rule wisely over nature. A point of confusion in our time, by the way. Um, so. That's the big picture of what man is to do. He is to rule and to subdue. Through the curse and the fall, we still have within our souls a desire to rule and subdue. The problem is we're always frustrated in the ruling and subduing because just as we rebelled against God, the earth rebels against us. So we have the thorns and the thistles. So the ruling imperative hasn't been taken away. It's just that we have uh, thousands and thousands of ohms of resistance to the subduing. And in the ethical and spiritual sense, we can't do anything because we have locked into this sin apart from God's grace, which he gives us through Christ. And Jesus Christ, of course, all through his earthly life, was a model of... The, the man who subdues and rules. He subdued. He obeyed what God did. He was 100% successful in carrying out the mandates of God in his personal life. And as a result, he earned righteousness. And that righteousness is attributed to us at the point of salvation. So he represents the human race, just as the first Adam represents the human race. A hard concept to understand, but... That's, in in essence, what our salvation is all about. Now, when we come to this point in our progress in history, we're looking at um, this last event in the sequence. And David, the whole story of this David thing, is to give us a model of what leadership in the kingdom of God is to look like. And as we said again and again, the way to read the Bible is to read it over against its environment. 
And so while you can get many, many blessings out of Scripture, you can get more when you set the Bible over against the world system and you see the contrast. So that's what we're trying to do in this, and you'll see this happen tonight. The, the idea is that the king of the nation, whoever he is, ought to fulfill this ideal of subduing. And the question that we face with the First Samuel narratives is who is going to be the leader in the kingdom. Once again, to review the timeline so we can set this in history, we have from 2000 B.C. when we have a point, uh, this was the time when the old dynasty of Egypt began back here. We have the all the continents have been settled by this time. Uh, Noah's sons have sent, uh, sp- uh, spread their architecture throughout all the continents. Um, the world has been surveyed. The maps have been drawn, and we've seen those. So all that has happened before Abraham. Now along comes Abraham, and God says, at this point in history, I am going to reject the civilization. Basically, this is a God turning his back spiritually on civilization and starting a new counterculture. And the rest from Genesis 12 on through history is a story of God disrupting civilization. There's always a disruption. In the Old Testament, the disruption is uh, Abraham and Lot. Then we have a bigger disruption in Egypt. Then we have the conquest and settlement, and that's a big disruption. Now we have, we're in to the king. And now we're going to have a very severe disruption in how men are to view kingship and leadership. That's the setting for what we're doing here in Samuel. Now, last time we, we saw, when we were dealing with the problem of mimicking the world. In other words, we saw how the Jews were saying that they wanted a king. But the king that they wanted was the king modeled after their, their, their image of the world. And we went to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you'll turn there, we'll go back to that passage just a little bit. Because this represents a turning point in the Samuel narratives. This is one of those key chapters. Because from 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8 through chapter 15, this whole block of material is devoted to an examination of what went wrong with men's prayer request to have a king like all the other nations. And they got a king. And it was a conditional kingship. And at 1 Samuel 8, in one of the most important political passages, and I hesitate to use the word political because the Bible isn't a political document, but it has wisdom principles that can be applied in the political realm. And 1 Samuel is one of those places, and we brought Lex Rex in to show you what uh, a tract that was published in 1644 that was widely read uh, among educated Englishmen and Americans that was built off of this idea that the king, the king of the kingdom must abide underneath the law. So if there's a question between law and king, it's law that wins out. That's Deuteronomy 17. In 1 Samuel 8, 
the key words. Just as remember, those of you who were with us in, in, um, in the Tower of Babel, when civilization began and we have that fracturing linguistically in the human race, and we, we, we saw what the cry was of our forefathers as they gathered at the, at, this, at the Tower of Babel. Remember what it said? It said, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, that can be translated many ways, but the, the impact of that tremendous statement is that is the spirit of the world system. That is the spirit of sinful man. That says that I will define my life. I will define meaning and purpose. I will be like the Most High, and I will have a knowledge of good and evil, meaning I define what is good and evil. I am the lawmaker. I invent truth. I am autonomous. And that's the cry. And that was what was the whole spirit of the Tower of Babel. Now, in a small mini version of this, we have in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 8, the same cry. This time, you remember, it's, it's a, they, they send a delegation, verse 4. So this is, this is representative of the nation. This isn't just a few old guys coming to Samuel. This is a delegation that has been appointed by the tribal leadership to represent the families of Israel. So it's a joint request that comes to them in verse 5. And that what they want, you make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And you remember the analysis because they had just gone through the judges period. And during the judges period, back here before that, that passage, what was the conclusion of this period? Socially, what had happened? Remember? Chaos. And what is the, the refrain, the prophetic analysis of the period? By the way, the first history book wasn't Herodotus and Thucydides. It was the Hebrew prophets who wrote analysis of history to track God's covenant working out. And when they analyzed what went wrong in the judges' period, their conclusion to that book was that every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. There was no leadership. There was no real spiritual leadership. So, for uh, this period of history exposes the fallacy that all power in the people, well, the people had the power in the theocracy, and what did the people do with their power? They became corrupt and chaotic. And that's always a story. So, that is an important chapter in biblical history. That refutes an axiom that's held today by a lot of intellectuals, that all you have to do is educate everybody and everything will be cool. Just a matter of education. And we give this and that and so on, and it's, it's everybody can do it, and the people rule. Well, the Bible is a little more skeptical because the people we're talking about here, including ourselves, we're sinners. We're fallen. We are in rebellion against the law of God. And so it's going to collapse. Well, as everything happens, the pendulum swings, and you go from chaos to a demand for order. You go from licentiousness to legalism. And people want to replace chaos with some order, be it godly order or non-godly order. We've got to have order. So the cry is for totalitarian government. And so we went through last time, 1 Samuel 8, and all the arguments that Samuel prophesies, basically it's prophecy, he argues that this is the way it's going to happen. 
And he, he carefully makes the spiritual issue. So lest we forget the spiritual issue that's going on. Look at verse 6, 7, and 8 again. Here's where, here are the spiritual dynamics. Verse 7 at the end, the last clause in verse 7 says, They have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Who is the real king of Israel? See, this passage gives you the theology of kingship. The king is God. So when people are dissatisfied in verse 5 about what's going on, the blame is really on God. God didn't design the system right. Change it. So now we have this problem that creeps into the Samuel King's dialogues. And here's the problem we, we started with uh, last time, and it comes to some sort of resolution tonight. The problem is this. You have the, the Deuteronomic Code allows for a king. We know that from Deuteronomy 17. The people demand a king, in verse 5, of a certain kind. And God says, I won't let you have that kind. I'll give you a king. I'll choose the guy, and we'll see how it works out. So, we, we went through that section, and you remember that when we came over, and of course, Saul's anointed, and Saul begins to have problems, and so on. And in 1 Samuel 12, which is where we kind of ended last time, we have the change of command ceremony. This is when Samuel retires from active life, and he turns over the reins of the government to Saul. Actually, Samuel didn't have the reins of government. Samuel was a prophet. But he's turning over the leadership of the nation. He's the first great biblical prophet after Moses. And he turns over the reign, and now in verse 13, he says, Behold the king. He presents the king to the people. But then he cautions them, and from verse 14 on to through the end of that chapter, he says, If. And he phrases the whole thing to make this a conditional kingship. So just watch what's going on here. This is a conditional kingship. This is a kingship that is rooted on the failure or success of the king and the nation. It is the same sort of arrangement that God did to the whole nation at Mount Sinai. Remember we said that was a conditional covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant says, you will be blessed if, and you will be cursed if. Now, there are prophetic portions in it because the Sinaitic Covenant is built on top of what covenant? What's the anchor covenant underneath it all? The Abrahamic Covenant. And what does the Abrahamic Covenant say? Remember, three things. Land, seed, worldwide blessing. Is it a conditional covenant under here, or is it an unconditional covenant? It's an unconditional covenant. That means it's going to happen. Unconditional covenants are basically announcements of God's sovereignty. And he says this is what's going to happen. Conditional covenants are announcements of an offer. God offers to be king if you submit. And if you don't submit, I'm not going to be king. And if you don't submit, certain things are going to happen. And then, at the end, you remember when we went through this last year, the nation was given a national anthem in the 32nd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. 
And when they sang their national anthem, instead of what happened at Fort McHenry, when Israel sang that biblical national anthem, what they were singing was the entire narrative of their history from one end of history to the end. And in that narrative, God reveals that I will bring you back to the land. But make no mistake about it, Israel does not come back to the land because of the Sinaitic Covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant curses them. They're brought back to the land because God promises something's going to happen in which they will repent and fulfill righteousness, and then they will be brought back to the land. Well, that's the, that's the unconditional ground of Israel's existence in the Abrahamic Covenant. But here in 1 Samuel 12, we have the kingship only rooted in a condition. All right, so let's go now to 1 Samuel 15, because this is the last chapter in that whole section, the Saul section. We want to look at this and see what happens finally to Saul. This is another very famous chapter in the Bible. Very, very famous. A lot of preachers have preached many, many sermons on this one. This is the failure of Saul to go after the what, took what happened anyway. The idea is in verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you to king over Israel. Now you listen to the words. So watch how the chapter begins and then watch how the chapter ends. The chapter begins by ordering the king. By the way, notice who's ordering the king. The prophet is. What is the order we always observe in scripture? Who precedes the king? The prophet. Who makes the king? The prophet. Who starts the four gospels? Not Jesus, but Jesus' prophet, John. That's why the gospels begin with John and not Jesus. John is the anointing prophet. It's the same pattern you see in the Old Testament. Samuel anoints Saul. Samuel anoints David. Nathan takes over after, Saul, after Samuel. And then from that point on, there's a series of prophets. The prophets are always involved in kingmaking in the Bible. Don't ever think the kings just happen. They're not. They are brought down or they are put in place by these strange prophets that appear. Laymen, apparently, who knew the word of God and had a special call in their life. They played a peculiar role politically in the life of the nation. So... He's ordering the king to do this. And he gives the man, verses 1 through 9, he orders him to attack Amalek. Now, the Amalekites were a nasty group of people. Who they actually were in history, of course, depends on which chronology of history you take. I tend to prefer the chronology, which I'll cover sometime later, um, the, the radical different chronology that I think Velikovsky and other people have, have raised questions about, um, and that is that the Amalekites we know as the Hyksos. The Hyksos is what the, they're called in history books, but that may be an alter ego to the same people. But anyway, the idea is here's the eastern Mediterranean, uh, the Red Sea comes up here, Israel is in here, and the Amalekites dwelt in this area. David is up here. But these people were ruthless, they were nasty, uh, they were uh, one big street gang is what it amounted to. And so they picked on Israel when Israel was coming out of the land, harassed them, and there were several engagements with them at that point in their history. And then, of course, 
uh, Joshua led the nation around after the death of Moses and entered the land from the, from the east side during that invasion process. But the Amalekites had hung around. And at this point in history, they are going to be eliminated. And Saul is going to be the one who actually eliminates this whole group of people. They're like the Canaanites. There are certain groups of people, once they go against God to a certain point, they're garbage. And it's too bad. I mean, we can't be self-righteous about this. I mean, it could happen to us, nationally speaking. But God seems to allow a people so much freedom, and then that is it. Period. And here's one of the cases in history. So, he says in verse 3 and 4, you go and commit holy war against them. If you want to read about holy war, the rules of engagement of holy war are given in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. That's the rules of engagement. The rules of engagement in holy war were different than non-holy war. There's two sets of military rules given in Deuteronomy 20. And harem, or holy war rules, mean total extinction. And we covered this, the, the moral dilemma of the conquest. How can a holy, righteous, loving God ever give the military orders that God gave in Haram to go in to kill every man, woman, child, and beast? Now, why was this? This total extinction, total genocide. And that was the order. Now, Saul's been given that order, and he goes to attack, verse 6. And the battle goes on, but then... Verse 8, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So he obeyed most of the military order in the engagement proceedings, except he took the king of Agag alive. Then verse 9 adds a few little other ditties to the thing. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, they destroyed utterly. Now, let's think this through. Who's king of Israel truly? Saul? No. We've already seen. It's Jehovah. So, whose war is this? Saul's war or Jehovah's war? It's Jehovah's war. Whose booty is it? Saul's booty or is it Jehovah's booty? It's God's booty. And God has the right to do what he wants with his booty. But what do we read in verse 9 happening? We read there's a little uh, evaluation of certain money value of things. And the good stuff, notice the text says the best of the sheep. Ah, as the saying goes, follow the money. The flesh always follows the money. And so that's what's going on here. This is a deal that's being cooked up, along with the rules of engagement, of course. Now, here we have a classic prophet-king confrontation. We're going to have several of these in the book of Samuel. There would be unknown in a pagan world. No layman is going to walk up to Esau Haddon and convince him of his sin. No lay Egyptian is going to walk into Pharaoh's temple and tell him off. Only in Israel do you dare have some person, a lay person, so to speak, walk into the presence of the king as a prosecuting attorney. Ask yourself, why? Fundamental question for Christians studying the Bible. Why is the behavior of the prophet and king in Israel different from 
all other political institutions of the world. What is the difference? What makes that happen in Israel that didn't happen in Mesopotamia and Egypt? And, and you know, Lord knows what other civilizations. What gave Samuel the power to do this? Well, it was God reigning. Samuel knew it. And he operated on the basis of an absolute law. It was the presence of absolute truth and absolute law that allowed them to do this. The Egyptians didn't have any absolute law. Remember when we showed this thing from Egyptian art and we said that in Egypt, and I said we'd come back to this. Well, tonight, here's another illustration of this process. If I can find my slide here. Um, when the prophets came in to the kings, they came in as the voice of God. That was an Egyptian uh, column in an Egyptian temple. And you remember how we read the symbolism on that? We said that if you look carefully at this, this depicts the theology of the Pharaoh. Inside this column, you have basically the hieroglyphic depiction of the Pharaoh. On either side, you have these lines. It looks like a line, but it stops right there in the scepter, and it starts right here above the bottom line. Those scepters are authority and rule. Up here you have the sun and the heavens. Down here you have the earth. Now, what do you think the artist is saying in that diagram? That explains Pharaoh. That's the doctrine of pagan totalitarian government. Pharaoh integrates heaven and earth. He is the lord of both. He is the link. He is the mediator. He, therefore, is the priest, king, and all else. He has absolute power. You don't walk into this guy and tell him he screwed up. And you don't go into the Assyrian kings unless you wanted them to, to uh, take your skin off with a knife. Um, you didn't walk into them either. Only in Israel do you have this behavior. So the confrontation occurs now, prophet against king. So what does he say? Well, this is a classic. Then came the word of the Lord to Samuel. It repents me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he's turned his back from following me. He has not performed my commandments, and it grieves Samuel, and he cried to the Lord all night. So Samuel wasn't one of these guys that, yeah, let's go get Saul. Didn't come naturally to Samuel. Samuel apparently liked the guy. And here he's, now he's in a mess because he's warned the people about Saul. He's apparently grown to have some affection for Saul. And now all of a sudden the Lord says, okay, Samuel, remember I said conditional kingship? Well, I'm pulling his chain. And you're going to be the guy that walks in and tells him I'm pulling his chain. So Samuel rose up early in the morning to meet Saul. And Samuel came to Saul. Now watch, watch this pious land. This is so cool. The way Saul, and this would make great drama. Some of you who like to write scripts and do drama. Try this one on for size. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. All sound very pious until the next verse. In one short phrase, Saul, uh, Samuel pricks the balloon. What does he hear? Oh, I hear something, Saul. What is the sheep? The best of the sheep. The, the expensive ones. The money. What do I hear? 
And now Saul has to come up with an excuse to cover this, like we all do, you know, cover up. So Saul said, well, they've been brought, they have brought them from, notice he didn't bring them, see. It's third person, notice on the verb. They brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, ah, oh, for such a pious thing, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, your God. And you see, we brought all this money and all this good stuff, we're going to give, you, give it to the church. Now, what has that got to do with the rules of engagement in Deuteronomy 18? What, it's God's war, it's God's booty, and God, it's already God's. God doesn't need it. He already has it. He's the one that got it. So you're not giving it to God. And God said, I want it destroyed. So Samuel said to Saul, stay and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And now he, he pulls his chain. And he goes on and describes this whole episode down to verse 21. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Verse 19. Saul said under Samuel, look at this in verse 20. See, because you want to watch, this is why this would be so neat if somebody could put this in a drama and do it in slow motion because in this conversation we have it all. This is exactly the dialogue that goes on all the time between the Lord and us. Because when he reaches down to convince us of our sin, what do we always try to do first? Well, <clears throat> and come up with all kinds of pious bills about what we did this and this and that. Oh, you can't, you don't really understand. Well, look at verse 20. Sam, Saul said, now he's got another excuse. See? Verse, verse 15 was his first little response. Now in verse 20 he says, well, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone the way which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, king of the... And I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil. What is, remember that in the Genesis 3, when God comes to Adam and he accuses him. And what does he say? The woman who... Thou givest me. See how truly real the Bible is? That's why you can read these things and be relaxed, because there's no, no super religiosity here. Everything's just blunt fact. We all know this. I mean, this is real. And Samuel said, and this is the verses 22 and 23 is the classic statement of rebellion and sin in Scripture. Very interesting. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken the fat of rams, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness or, or foolishness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. End of career. So it's not a nice chapter. Saul, in verse 24, admits now that his sin, um, Samuel said, I will not return for you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected thee. As Samuel turned about, dramatic thing happens in verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours better than you are. And the strength of Israel will not lie or repent, for he is not man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned. Honor me now, I pray. Go before the elders of my people, before Israel. Turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul. Saul worshiped the Lord. Now, this is, that's, see, in verse 31, there's God's grace. God's going to be gracious to him in a personal way. But he hasn't taken away the sentence of discipline, which he will lose his office. 
Now in verse 32 to 33, there's a little unfinished business. And this is a nasty one. You know, people against violence. Well, it's true. We have too much violence in our society. But then we get stupid about it. Like, let's get rid of onward Christian soldiers in the hymn book because it's violent. And uh, the, the God, in, in an evil world, there is violence. It's not because violence is bad. It's because there's evil there against which violence must have happened. So here's the case, verse 32 to 33. Bring me Agag the king. And Agag came unto him very carefully. He kind of senses that we've got a little problem here with this guy Samuel. He's not of the same kind as Saul. And so Agag says, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As the sword has made women childless, and so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord. Nice passage. Chop, chop, chop. Wouldn't that look good in technicolor? So here we have the end of the Amalekites. But notice whose ends in holy war. It is the prophet. If the king doesn't finish it, the prophet finishes it but it will be finished. And then, verse 35, a very poignant thing, considering the fact that personally, Samuel must have liked Saul. Look what happens in verse 35. Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So that verse summarizes all the relationships going on between God and Samuel and Samuel and Saul and God and Samuel and so forth. Now we have a new cycle in the book of Samuel. We have seen the cycle now. The first cycle is verses, uh, chapters 8 through 15. And now we come to another cycle. And from 16, 1 Samuel 16, on through 2 Samuel 4, the second cycle depicts the rise and reign of David. So when you read this section of the Bible, we're, we're talking about something else. We're seeing a replacement. And what's going to happen is it's not an instant replacement. These two blend together. Here's Saul. He reigns from 8 through 15. He is authorized king. But he actually doesn't die until 2 Samuel, until uh, the end of 1 Samuel. So he, he's solidly king for that period of time. And then he kind of phases out here. Meanwhile, in, verse, in, in chapter 16, the new guy is, comes on the scene, David. He is anointed, but he doesn't reign. He doesn't reign until over here in chapter 4. So, while Saul is phasing out, David is strengthening until finally he reigns. So, these passages from here on through there depict a most interesting time where you have the coexistence of two dynasties. And you want to watch the behavior of David now. Because this is going to show us what messianic, godly leadership looks like in contrast to Saul and his leadership. So all the stories that you read about, Goliath and David and all the rest, those Sunday school stories we all learned, those are like beads on a necklace. And you, don't, you want to read them not just as stories that are separate from each other. They're stories that are meant to be connected they're stories that give us the steps in this process of one dynasty replacing the other. And you'll see that that has very interesting parallels to Satan and Christ in, in history. 
Let's look at 1 Samuel 16. Notice several things about this. Um, if you look on the notes on page 104, uh, the first paragraph, I just point out the messianic emblem and then we'll look at 1 Samuel 16 for a few minutes. While Samuel was grieving all the failure of Saul, Yahweh led Samuel to anoint David as a youth. Notice the messianic emblem of the oil occurs. Again, what does the Hebrew word Meshach mean? The anointed one. So when we say Messiah or Christ, which is the Greek word for the Meshach, the, the Hebrew word, when we use that word, we're talking about a process. Christ is a description of Jesus. It's not his last name. It's a description that Jesus has come to reign because God has anointed him. And so... David, like Saul, is going to be anointed. And who's going to do the anointing? The prophet. Who anointed Jesus? A prophet. See the pattern? All is the same. All through Scripture. There has to be an anointing for the king. So in 1 Samuel 16, we have this, this historic moment. Verse 1. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, saying, I've rejected him from reigning over the world? Fill your horn with oil. Go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided me a king among his sons. And you'll know the story. Those of you who have read scripture know what happened. He walks in and all the sons line up except David. And he's out doing his chores. And it goes through one son after another. And this shows you, by the way, the process. The prophets themselves weren't the authority. Because Samuel says, maybe it's this guy. And then the voice within Samuel, the spirit of prophecy that is given to these men. These men are special men here now. He, the Lord tells him, no, Samuel, this isn't the guy. Well, well, what about this guy? No, not yet. And so they go through the whole place until we come now down to verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, are, are these all your kids? And he said, there remains yet the youngest one. He's out keeping the sheep. Well, go fetch him, for I'm not going to sit down until he's come here. And he came and he brought him in. And this is one of those rare verses in the Bible where we actually have a description of what somebody looks like. He was ruddy, and with all the King James and beautiful countenance, goodly to look at, actually, David, it was red hair. And I never have thought of Jewish people as having red hair. I always think of them as dark hair, black hair, because most of the Jewish people we know tend to come from Eastern Europe. They're Eastern European Jews. And I remember when I was in Israel one time, I was eating there with some of the Christians that were with us, and I looked up, and here was this Israeli army captain who walked in, and he was getting a lemonade or something, and he had the reddest hair I've ever seen. And I couldn't believe it, because here were all these other guys with black hair, black hair, black hair, and here's this guy with the insignia of Israeli IDF, the forces of Israel, with his red hair. And I thought, wow, that's neat, because... That's a picture of what probably David looked like. He was a young guy, 18, 19, you know, burrhead. And, uh, you know, his, uh, his M16 carrying with him. Um, so this is what David looked like. And here's the anointing. David is given the anointing. And now, from this period of time, to the time of the anointing, until 1 Samuel 4, is how David arrives at the throne. Notice the anointing precedes his accession to the throne by, by years. What, what's going on here? 
The, the answer is that the man earns the right to sit on the throne. He's anointed, which means he will sit on the throne, but he doesn't lie back and let God do it. He actually obeys the Lord through a series and he proves his leadership so that when he sits on the throne, the people acknowledge this. Um, it's not quite an election. It's not quite a de democratic thing like we have. But in a sense, these guys required allegiance on the part of the people before they took office. So even though they didn't have an election, in a sort, it was sort of a process in which a leader was acclaimed because of his, his lifestyle and skills. And if you look in the notes, I've summarized this whole section for you on pages 104 to 105. There are three skills there. Notice down the bottom on page 104. Oh, by the way, before you look at that, if you look at the middle paragraph on page 104, uh, this sort of summarizes very quickly all the, the stories. And if you connect them very quickly, as I try to do in this paragraph, you get the flow. The call of David, the call of God on David, had to stand the acid test of experience. Before David finally attained national recognition, now just think about this. Packed inside of this part of the Bible from 1 Samuel 16 down to 2 Samuel 4, here's what happened. One man in his lifetime. He survived seven assassination attempts. Not once. You know, President Reagan, knows some nitwit, tried to shoot him once. But this guy, they had seven assassination attempts, and the assassin operation was run by the prevailing dynasty. You talk about political cutthroats. That's typical of politics. That's typical of particularly of ancient Near Eastern politics. That's how dynasties secured themselves, by killing off the opposition. So here's David... And he survived seven attempts, and I've got all the verses there if you want to look them up. He evaded Saul's search and destroy missions three times. The military was ordered out to get him. He defeated the Philistines twice when he wasn't even king by taking remnants of an army. Guy built his own army out of the most ragtag group that ever volunteered to be soldiers. It's an amazing story. The Cave of Adullam experience is narrated in, in several of the Psalms. These guys were, were people that were castaways. They were losers. They were guys that just couldn't make it in life. And for some reason, they all flocked to David. So David's sitting down here, once knowing a real good army, Saul's army, and he has this collection of losers. And David is such a fantastic leader that he gets these guys, turns them around trains them, and they go into battle and they take on and beat the Philistines twice when the regular army isn't doing anything. So it gives you an idea of David's leadership and his skills. He obliterated the last remnants of the Amalekite coalition. There were still some pieces of those people left around. David took care of that. He won a long struggle of attrition with Saul's family to obtain allegiance of other Hebrew tribes besides that of his own tribe of Judah. Remember, he had to get 11 other tribes on this political ticket here. Remember, what's, what, pro, what was the other tribe that had a king? Benjamin. And in the Bible, if you noticed early in Samuel, and this, you might just note this in your reading, here's a little note to listen for as you read through 1 Samuel. When they go into battle, Saul does, you'll see a little note that says, 300,000 from all of Israel and 30,000 from Judah. 
See, the prophets are saying that there was a political split in the country. The, Judah, the tribe of Judah was not very popular. They're, they're looked upon as, you know, well, we're the nation over here. And there's the Judah people over there. So David's got a political problem. He's coming out of an unpopular tribe when all this is going on. And he has to win these other tribes to his, to his throne. So the guy's a politician. He's a military ruler. He escaped from two bad decisions by aligning himself with the Philistines. almost got himself in a war against Israel. Gradually, both Israel's leaders and the populace recognized the choice of Jehovah in David. Jonathan, the crown prince... Now, notice, this is amazing. So we heard about David and Jonathan, you know, the friendship. Now all the gay people like to make a big issue out of that. You know, uh, gee. Jonathan, that the whole point of the story is, who is Jonathan with regard to the first dynasty? If Saul dies, who has the right to the throne? Jonathan does. So in the politics of the flesh, who would most want David eliminated? Jonathan. You see the stunning narrative that's going on here? Why these stories are all interlocked? This is a hunk of God's gracious love and, and how he works with, with, in his sovereignty, like a chess player, working all the details out in a way that is utterly bewildering to the flesh. If there was one man who would want, besides Saul, David dead, it is the crown prince Jonathan. Who is the man who gives his free, volitional blessing on David, the crown prince? And most people fail to realize that there's about 20 years age difference between those guys. They weren't buddy buddies. They weren't both little boys that grew up together at 18. John, Jonathan is ready to rule. He's in his 30s when David's in his teens. That's the difference. It's not quite the little platonic thing that you know. That's, it's all totally surprising. there that takes on meaning only when this passage is compared with pagan literature. If you look on page 104, I've compared it to two other famous, uh, well, three. I forgot to underline the third one there in the text on page 104. Homer's Iliad, Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes, and Virgil's Aeneid. Those are books we used to read in school back when we could read in school. The, the, those, all of those are stories of championship battles. And in those stories, there was a peculiar tactic that was used. And the tactic, and by the way, all those stories come after 1 Samuel 17. So interesting, which has the precedence. But they were all features of a champion. You look in the text, late, just as in these later stories, David and Goliath are called men of the middle. It's a phrase that occurs in verse 4. They went up out of the champion. See that word champion translated in the King James in verse 4? That's actually, in the Hebrew, it really means the man of the middle. And it's a, it's a, it occurs elsewhere in those verses I give you. Verse 8 and 9 is the idea. The idea was that two armies that were faced off, one against the other, would determine who won the battle by taking the champion warrior from both sides. Actually, it was a humane way because it saved a lot of bloodshed. And they let their champions battle it out to the death. 
And it's interesting that all three of these stories that are very, very famous pagan classics honor this as the great tactic. And yet, historically, by centuries, Samuel beats them. Here the Jews had their champion that came out in the middle. It makes you wonder whether the authors of these pagan literatures weren't really borrowing the concept out of the Bible. So David's first area of skill is his warrior skill. As a teenage boy, he is the man of the middle. He goes out there in the historic warrior skill. He becomes a hero of the nation by destroying the, the champion of the other side. The second skill was an unlikely one given the first one you would think. And that was his musical ability. His phenomenal ability to compose music and play instruments. David was the one who later on stimulated instrumental worship in the Bible, with all due respect to the a cappella tendency in certain religious circles. David used instruments to accompany singing. And he, was the he had his asaph, he commissioned the guy. He was the one that stimulated the choirs, the Levite choirs. And it came out early in his life because when Saul had an evil spirit, who did they call for therapy? David. And what was David's therapy? Playing music for Saul. So early on, not only is David the warrior, but he has this ability to compose music. He is an artist along with being a warrior. Very interesting combination. You just kind of somehow, I would never figure out those two don't fit together in my mind. But they did here in God's mind. So, so powerful were his compositions that they have become the spiritual food of saints for over 30 centuries. His third skill was his wisdom, his political wisdom. He spared his arch foe twice, trusting that Yahweh would fulfill his word. And I want you to notice, if you turn to 1 Samuel 24... For a moment, we'll see how David dealt with his political enemy. In 1 Samuel 25, let's see, um, where would be a good one? It's happened several times here. Um, Oh, this gets into his... his uh, this is a reference to how he's married Saul's daughter, and this has a little problem there, so we won't get into that. Um, let's go to 1 Samuel 26. Now, in, verse, in chapter 26, David ambushes Saul. David is using his military skill. He sneaks up, and uh, he and one of his uh, officers... Um, Sneak up on him, verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping in a trench. His spear was stuck in the ground. Obviously, he didn't have any kind of night perimeter sentry duties, or the guys were sacked out or something. Big security violation here. But Abner and the people lay around about him. So Abishai says to David, God has delivered thine enemy into thy hand. Now let me kill him. I pray you, with a spear, even to the earth once, I will not smite him the second time. In other words, when I take this spear, I only have to smack this guy once with it. And he's going to be long gone. So, I mean, this is a typical soldier, you know. Gut the guy, see? Now, verse 9 is David cuts him off. Now, David has the military skills, 
But right at this point, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed? Why? Does anybody have an idea what that means? Here's a guy, one of his buddies in battle, tell me take care of this guy right now. End your problems forever. And they're right there, they only got feet to go. And David says, hold it. Why does he use the language, do you suppose, that he uses here? Notice the technical language. Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Or he explains it. The anointed obviously refers to Saul as king. So David recognizes authority. He recognizes this guy is out after him. He's tried to kill him seven times. But David still understands that it is not yet God's time to promote him. It's not God's time to promote he, David. So he says in verse 10, now I want you to glimpse this because we're going to flip to a, a pagan and how a pagan would handle this. So I want to see how David handles it and then we see how the spirit handles it versus how the flesh would handle it. In verse 10, David says, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him or his day shall come to die or he will descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the anointed. But I pray you, take now the spear that is bolstered and the cruise of water and let's go. David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster. They got away. No man saw it. No man knew it. They were all, because of deep sleep, that's what happened to their sentry operation in verse 12. They got anesthetized. Then David went over to the other side. This is a, and there's humor, by the way, in this text. David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill in a great space, and then he, he cried out to the people, Yoo-hoo! Look what I got over here, guys! I mean, talk about being embarrassed. These guys, they were sworn to defend this man. And you can imagine, I mean, the guys, soldiers that were, were given a commission to defend the leader, it allowed something like a security breach like this to happen, usually got killed themselves. This is a very serious thing. So David, he's laughing about it. <laughs> hey, look at this, guys. Look what I got. So he ridicules them. And he makes the issue very clear to Saul. God is blessing me. Remember this process? God is blessing me, Saul. What's happened to your blessing? See, he's, he's playing with Saul's mind here. Playing with his mind. Saying, the Lord is blessing me and I want you to see it. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Now, what aspect in David do you think this shows? Let's compare, and uh, let's go to now over to the notes on page 105. I, I tried to read through some ancient materials that would give us a contrast for a similar episode. And what I want you to see is what the, Bible, the biblical text records of a godly man's behavior in the same situation of the fleshly man's behavior that you see in most history journals. Uh, okay, so page 105. Um, if you look there at the second paragraph, in contrast to David's story of accession is the story of the famous king, Assyrian king, who lived a few centuries later, Esarhaddon. No biblical revealing prophet came to him in his youth. Instead, his father, the Assyrian king Sennacherib, chose him as successor. By the way, Sennacherib was a guy that leveled the northern kingdom in, seven, in uh, 721, or one of them before that. 
attack them. Later, an oracle confirmed to Esau Haddon his father's choice, but he still faced the problem of convincing the rest of the royal family and the nation. Rather than relying upon God's grace, Esau Haddon gained his throne by his own works, seen inside an idolatrous view of the world. He himself recounts the matter, and here's a direct quote from a chronicle of that man's reign. I became mad as a lion. My soul was aflame. I called up the gods by clapping my hands. Notice, that's a nice way. Hey, God! With regard to my intention of assuming the kingship, my paternal legacy, I prayed to Asher, Sin, Shamash, Bel, Nebo, Mergal, to Ishtar of Nineveh, Ishtar of Abella, and they agreed to give an uh, answer by an oracle. I did not even wait for the next day. I spread my wings as a flying storm bird to overwhelm my enemies. By the way, what's the symbol you see in architecture for the Syrian kings? You see it with wings. This is the metaphor they frequently used. The Assyrian king did, did see the world in the, did not see the world. Whoops, textual problem there. Did not see the world in the light of the creator-creature distinction. He had no sovereign word from the Creator concerning his destiny, so he diversified and hedged his faith in a group of created God and goddess images. You know, I mean, look at the collection. You know, surely one of them might be the right one to pray, so we'll cover them all. Such a group lacked the sovereign power of the God of Israel, so that ultimately all depended on Esau Haddon. If the gods don't control the situation, who has to control the situation? Esau Haddon has to control it for himself. His personal security depends upon his own works. He had to create his own security by eliminating his opponents in the uncontrolled political arena. None could be left for the gods to remove as David left Saul in the hands of the Lord. Esau Haddon made no oaths guaranteeing the merciful survival of his foes' families as David did for the house of Saul. Watch, and here's another quote. Here's the story of this bloody Assyrian. In the month of Adar, a favorable month on the eighth day, the day of the Nebo festival, I sat down happily in the throne of my father. The south wind, the breeze directed by Ea, blew at this moment this wind, the blowing of which pretends well for exercising kingship, came just in time for me. The culpable military which had schemed to secure the sovereignty of Assyria for my brothers, I considered guilty as a collective group, meted out a grievous punishment to them, I exterminated their male descendants. What Middle Eastern leader recently did the same thing to members of his close family that we were involved in a conflict with? Saddam Hussein. People said, Saddam Hussein is acting unusually, in an unusual way compared to Western standards. Is he? These are Middle Eastern standards. Saddam Hussein fulfills the Middle Eastern role model. He's doing what his forebearers did in exactly the same area. Where's Assyria? Today's Iraq. Same group of people acting the same way. So, after, so, so what do we see now? Compare that behavior that you observe with Esau Haddon with the behavior we just observed in 1 Samuel 26. That's what I mean by studying the Bible in tension with its environment. And by studying it in tension, you learn how the Spirit interfered with men's hearts and transformed them. If God had not been at work in David's life, David would have acted just like Esau Haddon, right? So the Esau Haddon that I've given you on page 105, that's what the flesh would do. That's what any man's flesh... I mean, we might not kill our enemies, but we can backbite, we can politically sabotage them, can't we? 
We can assault them in many, many different ways. We don't have to kill or cut their throats. There are other ways of taking care of people politically, organizationally. But you see, David didn't have to do that. He didn't have to resort to those tactics. Why? Where was his security? In the Lord. So you see, David could go about the whole thing, let these people try to kill him. He could rest in the fact that he knew God called him to do a certain job. God would get him to the throne. And you remember that little phrase in, in uh, 1 Samuel 26 where he says in verse 10, it's a classic statement because this is David's answer to Esau Haddon or to anybody else because he's explaining it to this hardened officer that's sitting right next to him 12 inches away. Why are you going to kill the guy? David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will smite him or directly, that would be direct intervention, or his day will come to die, he'll die of old age, or he will descend into battle and perish. He'll, t he'll be taken care of. I don't have to do the doing, you see, because I trust the Lord. The Lord will do the doing. My job is to do what the Lord had me to do. It's his job to take care of those problems. And I'm not going to get into his business. So I'm going to sit back and I'm going to trust the Lord to handle that problem. I've got enough of my own problems to handle. And see how he cut it? I can obey and take care of my little area and I'll let the Lord take care of those areas. It's a very encouraging section. Next week, beginning on page 106, I'd like you to read, to background for that, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, pay very close attention to 7 and read over page 106 and 107 because I'm going to pull the same stunt there I did tonight. We're going to study that text over against what, in this case, not an Assyrian king did, but what an Egyptian pharaoh did. <coughs> so we want to compare the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel with how in, in uh, Egypt they handle the same kind of a situation. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you that you have shown historically the power of your spirit, that we can look on objective historical material and see your footprints all over it. We thank you that this is not something that we have to conjure up in our emotions. It's not something private, but it's something public out in the open as a matter of the historical record. And we thank you for this because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we thank you for what you have so revealed to us in these historical chronicles. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Didn't explain it that clearly. <laughs> Chapter 28, the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 20. Okay, uh, Tommy's raising the question of what happened. Uh, I see he's read ahead of the class. Very good, Tom. Um, they, there's a strange situation of a seance. And it's one of those things in the Bible where um, we normally think of seances as demonic and so forth and, and this and that. Uh, there is a seance described in Scripture. And it's in 1 Samuel 28. And um, it's a refutation of most seances. Because in the seance, uh, Saul is desperate. And um, he can't get any prophetic guidance. Well, why can't he get any prophetic guidance? Think of what we did today. What's happened to Saul? Well, 
the kingship has been removed from him. And when the kingship is moved, what moves with it? The Holy Spirit and the prophetic guidance. So you see, here's a guy now, he's still on the throne, still active as a political leader, but now his line to God is gone. Now he's got a situation where he can't get any political wisdom. So what is he going to do? So he cries out for guidance, and it's a sad situation because here's a man who had a very strong... The way you read the text, I think, is that Saul and Samuel came to very much appreciate each other. It was not easy for Samuel to obey God and walk into his friend Saul and tell him, you're out of here, kid. That didn't come easy. But Saul, Samuel had the priorities right in his life, and he said, well, the Lord wants me to do that, then you know, salute and say, yes, sir, and do it. So he did, and Saul liked Samuel. In spite of the fact that Samuel was the, announced his downfall, he felt a loss. And so at that point in 1 Samuel 28, where uh, Tom's talking about, he goes to a witch who has a reputation for talking to the dead, the spirits of the dead. And it's a very interesting passage because it refutes the idea that these witches talk to the spirits of the dead. What obviously they do is they, they, they have some convincing extra-natural situations that lead you to suspect they're talking to someone but they're not the spirits of the departed. They're other spirits. Well, what happens when, when this, this occurs is that she tries to conjure up Samuel from the grave, and all of a sudden he appears. The most interesting thing about 1 Sam 28 is, is the witch's reaction to this. She's shocked. Well, if she's been normally talking to the spirits of the dead, why should she be shocked when one appears? Well, quite clearly, she's shocked because whatever it was she was talking to before weren't spirits of the dead. This is the first time she's ever seen something like this happen. Geez, somebody really did this. So, probably what it was was demonic voices speaking to her, self-hypnosis or something, but she had convinced guys that she could talk to people of the dead. Well, and, and the spirits, the evil spirits, apparently have the capability of... Um, of, I shall just say, surveying our memories so they can mimic pretty well uh, people. Not because they, imper they, they can impersonate them uh, because they, they know enough, they're very observant and maybe they can read our thoughts. And so they, they can impersonate. Well, the Witch of Endor raises up, uh, calls for Samuel and he appears. Now, obviously, he's appearing out of his grave, where his grave is paradise. It's, it's, it's um, the place where Old Testament saints went before Jesus went to heaven to take everybody to heaven with him. So the Old Testament dead went to Sheol. There was two places in Sheol. There was the Abraham's bosom place, which is the good place, and then there was the other place. So there was a, there was a difference there. But it wasn't heaven because heaven wasn't populated until the Lord Jesus Christ could rise from the dead and be the first man to walk into heaven. Well, the Old Testament grave, uh, and, is, and it's another strange thing that I've never figured out, but it's interesting speculation, is if you look carefully in the text of 1 Samuel 28, he appears wearing his prophetic clothes. Now, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't expect him to appear naked, but on the other hand, it is interesting that the spirits of the departed have clothes. Now, it's, just, it's always been interesting. I wonder what, you know, where the clothes come from. But they do. 
and all of a sudden Sam is there, and then, then, then the, the implication is that, remember, Samuel had warned in the passage tonight, Saul, duck on it, disobedience is his idolatry and witchcraft. And what does he wind up doing before the book's over? Goes into witchcraft. He starts off rebellious, and he winds up in demonic things. And the two go together, hand in glove. So, that's the story of, of Fatima. It was a real seance. And it's a great passage when you hear all these people talk about, oh, gee, so-and-so, they, they, they talk to the dead and they do this and that. Well, they're, they're, it's, it's fake. Nobody's going to talk to the dead. The dead, are, uh, the dead are in a place where they don't communicate to the living. And it's deliberately done so by God in passages like Luke 15. Remember? In Luke 15, there's a passage there where Lazarus wants to go back. Please send someone. Someone go back and warn my family uh, about this. And the Lord says, no, they got enough information. So he's cut off from doing that. So that's a very interesting. There's so many interesting passages in this. It's a crime that we have to go through it like we do. But if we don't do it like we do, then we never get the big picture. So, Any other uh, questions? Yes, Tammy. Oh, the Hyksos. Uh, H-Y-K-S-O-S. The Hyksos, the reason, the, the reason that, that that identification happens is because it gets back to what we said last week about history. The way you learn history in school, the way we're all taught, if you take a graduate course in ancient history, this is the, this is the kind of the gospel outline. You have the old kingdom of Egypt, you have the middle kingdom of Egypt, and you have the new kingdom of Egypt. And in these little places, you have what's called the intermediate, intermediate periods. And if you go to museums and you deal with the pharaohs and the mummies, you'll see they're dated by old, middle, or new. And... You, and by Egyptian chronology, the New Kingdom supposedly existed at the time of the Exodus. And I've always had a problem with that because I can't conceive of a major event like the Exodus happening with absolutely no record whatever in, over here in the New Kingdom of any disruption. None. And I can't imagine the conquest of the land under the, on the, when, when the whole most powerful height of Egyptian military power in the whole Middle East is there. How come the armies of Joshua never ran into Egyptians? So, on the, and, and in between here was a group of people called the Hyksos. And the Hyksos were vicious. And they, they, they uh, record, recorded in the Middle Kingdom, and the Egyptians considered these people just bar total barbarians. They, they were to the, um, the Middle East as the Visigoth and the Vandals were to Europe after the fall of Rome. And they, when, when, great when great countries fall uh, in history, they have maintained the peace. Rome, for all of its cruelty, maintained order and peace. Pax Romana. And when it collapsed, uh, all of the weirdos come out of the woodwork. And this is what has happened. Every place you go, this is what's happened in Russia. The communists, for all their viciousness, did keep order in Russia. 
Now you've got total chaos. Everybody's doing everything like the Book of Judges. Well, the Hyksos came out of somewhere, nowhere. Nobody really knows how these people got started. They came in, they invaded northern Egypt. And they slaughtered and they killed and they dominated and then they disappeared. Well, the amazing thing is, uh, this man proposes a, a change in the thing. And he moves this arrow over here and puts the exodus right there. Now, once you make this slip, and you, you now have an explanation, because now the exodus is what ended the Middle Kingdom. And when you make that ID, then who was there to meet the armies of Israel coming out of Egypt but these strange people called Amalekites. And their king is named Agog, Agag. The first king and the last king, both named Agag. It might have been a title instead of a popular name. But the Hyksos, their king, is known in history as Apop. And the P and the Gs are often interchanged. So there's a mysterious identity that happens here. Moreover, if you make this identification, one of the most famous women of all history reigned right in there. And she was the queen, Hepshetza. And she was the one who did something, went to a place called God's land. Nobody, the scholars don't know what she means by that. She went to God's land and she brought back amalgam trees and all kinds of different bot botanical things. And she has a whole list of it in her chronicles. And if you match that with what Sol Solomon gave the queen of Sheba, they fit. She comes back to Egypt and she alters the temple worship so radically that her son, who is Tutmosis III, when he attains the throne, he spends the rest of his life obliterating every record of his mother. He, he plasters over for years. They didn't know Queen of Shesek lived because her son would plaster over every one of her places with himself, covering up everything his mother did and to erase her from history because he was so ashamed at what she had done to the Egyptian priesthood. Well, I think the answer is that Queen Hepshetsuk was converted under Solomon, came back and uh, tried to reform the temple worship in Egypt, and this was very offensive to the Egyptians. And when her son came back into power after her, his mother died, he decided to take care of everything his mother didn't, reverse the whole thing and repaganized it. But these are the, this is a, one of those things the identification seemed like the Hyksos that we got into back in Genesis and we talk about geology. We get into it and we talk about origins of civilization. Either we're at odds with the anthropologist one time, we're at odds with the biologist, we're at odds with the geologist, we're at odds with the astronomer, and now we're at odds with the historian. And I just say, I've been in enough of these things over the last 30 years, every time I go to chase one of these things down, I come away not having solved the problem but having raised enough flags in my mind that what I was taught in school and what I'd been taught in the university and graduate school has got a lot of holes in it. And I think what we get is we get an inverted pyramid of knowledge. And you start changing a few little axioms down here and the whole thing starts rocking. And it's scary to somebody who's built their PhD uh, career on writing papers, all of which depend on this nice integrated structure, thinking that everything's cool out to the third decimal place and we just have to do some cleanup work out there. What we're arguing is, no, we're going to the left of the decimal place and saying there were some major problems here. We have prematurely concluded that we really know more than we do. That's why I showed you the maps back last year. I wanted you to see 
that this idea that we dropped our bananas and start digging seeds in the land and turn it into agrarian reformers and that was the start of civilization doesn't fit because you get high levels of architecture and technology at the very beginning of history. Where did the technology come from? Flying saucers brought it to Earth? Yeah, some people think that. That's the explanation. Got interplanetary visitors that came in, brought up, because why? Why do they have to propose such absurdities? Because they've got to explain high information content. Where did it come from? An evolutionary basis, no place for it to come from. But if the Bible's true, and you have men living four or five hundred years, and, and you have people of the quality of Noah, then when you see a battery, for example, dated 500 B.C., where they plated jewelry with uh, citrus juices in a battery, and uh, so they were doing metallurgy and metal plating five centuries before Christ, where'd that come from? We didn't, supposedly didn't discover electricity until, what, 1800, 1900? And they had wires and citrus batteries going on, plating their jewelry in 500, 500 years before Jesus. So what's the story we get in school about, you know, science, technology, something new? Anything else? Okay. Yes. Oh, they did? Huh. Well, there's a, there's a ferment that's going on because of a young man in, in, in England right now who's got his doctorate, and he's an Egyptologist, like I told you, and uh, he's just creating all kinds of storms because he's come out with a book uh, that I'm trying to get hold of where he basically says that this has happened. And, of course, this just, I mean, everybody's pulling their hair out because for, for men have built their careers on this old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom, and for some young boy to come out and say, God, you, all you old guys are, are wrong, it doesn't set too well. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, the guy's taking his career in his hands, doing what he's doing, but it's great. <laughs> okay. Uh, are there any questions? We'll come next week and look at the Davidic Covenant.